0: Well good morning everyone. Glad to see you all here today. We have been in Deuteronomy now for a long time, (laughs) right? Uh, 25 chapters. That's a lot of material in the Old Testament, but good news, we are finally preparing to land the plane. Uh, Don't have to like put your tables into the upright position or whatever, but we are getting really close, and hopefully this has not felt like 40 years wandering in the desert, uh, but hang in there. The finish line is in sight. Deuteronomy has 34 chapters in all, and chapter 26, which is going to be our passage today, is a significant turning point in the book. So as you can see here on the outline on our screen, um, first four chapters of Deuteronomy, more or less, covering introduction, it's a reminder from Moses, the story so far, where have we been, how did we get here? Then chapters 5 all the way through to chapters 26 have been really uh, a reminder, a recapitulation uh, a retelling of the law. That's where we've been for so many weeks, going back through the law. And now, as we draw to the end of the book in chapters twenty-seven through thirty, which will start next week, is kind of a call to covenant commitment. Moses is now going to call the people, like I've shared with you the law again, explained why it's so important, and now I'm calling you to commit to this covenant as we move forward. And then the last few chapters are final words from and about Moses. So we are, it's four sections, but those are not equal in size. So we are very close to the end of the book here. And our passage This week is significant because it really brings to a close this entire section of law that started all the way back at the end of chapter 4, right before Moses reminded them again of the Ten Commandments in chapter 5. And so how does Moses conclude this giant section of the law? Well, we're going to read about some special ceremonies that uh, Moses wants the people to do, but behind those ceremonies is a call for them to commit their hearts, all of their hearts, for all of their life. And to do that, Moses gives them three simple commands, or at least I summarize it here in three simple commands, which is just to love God, to love others, and to say stay consistent in living out that life. So let's dive in and take a look here chapter 26. My first encouragement today to you all is simply this, to love God freely, abundantly, with everything that you have. Now, I know this might seem a little odd on Mother's Day to be talking about Thanksgiving Day. It's sort of like a Thanksgiving half-birthday, right? But um, essentially, Thanksgiving is what our main section here is is all about. So there's no turkey, there's no pumpkin pie, but Moses commands the people to display their love for God by celebrating his provision and his protection. So what did this look like? Well, the ceremony Moses describes here in chapter 26 was pretty simple. Once the people had entered the land, they were to come to the central place of worship with some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, and then present it there to God as an offering. Now, well, the people would then make two very important declarations. And first, they would say this, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. That's verse 3. That may sound a little bit odd, say, uh, uh, I say to the, declare today to the Lord your God, this is really just a, a way of being polite and deferential in the presence of the priests who would be receiving these sacrifices. But the point of this declaration is to affirm publicly that they have done everything God has told them to do. In other words, an opportunity for them to declare mission accomplished. Remember, so much of the book of Deuteronomy is focused around this very task entering the land, fulfilling all the promises God has laid out before them. And so, this declaration would be massively significant, right? A recognition we've actually done it. Like what God told us to do, we've done it, and here we are. Not merely crossing a geographical border, anyone could do that, but truly possessing the land for the Lord, grabbing hold of all the promises of God with both hands. Now, I said there were two declarations here. That was the first, but now look at verses 5 through 11. And the second declaration here really just builds on the first. He's giving an abbreviated history here of God's work in their lives from the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to their slavery and suffering in Egypt to the mighty works of God in the Exodus all the way to their arrival in the Promised Land. It's a story Moses has repeated to them many, many times and now he wants them to declare this story publicly as well finding themselves within those words. A story that defines them as God's people living in God's place under God's law. And in this context of remembrance and thanksgiving, the offering of firstfruits served two key purposes. Now, first, it was meant to be clear uh, evidence. Uh, first, it was meant to be clear evidence they had indeed established themselves in the land. right? cities. Conquered, land tilled and planted, fruit harvested. But second, and perhaps more importantly, the offering of first fruits signified their ongoing trust in God to provide, not just in the past, but into the future now as well. You know, I think part of the reason we struggle to understand the significance of such an act is because we live in a time of relative abundance and plenty, right? We're completely removed from the production of food, so we don't really ever question our ability to buy whatever we need and whatever we want it. But I was watching one of these uh, reality TV shows a while back, and it was in Alaska, and they were talking about surviving through the winter, and this whole show was about this mad race to collect and store up as much wood and food as they could to make it through the winter. It's pretty much all they did all through the summer chop and stack wood and try and catch as much salmon and dry it and prepare it to make it through the winter. And they had very specific goals they knew they had to shoot for in order to make it through the winter. And because of their isolated location and the severity of the weather, if they didn't hit those goals, they would be in a very precarious position. Now imagine that guy on that show measuring, counting his dried salmon, measuring his wood, knowing exactly how much he needs to get through the winter, and then taking 10% and sending it to one side and presenting that as an offering to God, as a way of saying thank you for your provision in the past, and I am now trusting myself completely in your hands for the future as well. Now that's a real and significant, tangible sacrifice, right? And of course, life in the promised land wasn't a reality TV show, the weather isn't as severe as Alaska, but... I want you to get a sense of the personal cost of this ceremony and this sacrifice. The goal was that they were giving something that will cost them something. Remember, God doesn't need the food, right? What he's looking for from his people is a tangible demonstration of love and commitment to him. Not just thankfulness for God's provision in the past, but a demonstration of complete and total uh, a trust in God to provide in the future as well. So this is why we talk about giving as being a spiritual discipline. Because the main point is not the money. It's not whatever it is that you're giving away. It's the spiritual growth and the development that happens in our hearts as we go through that process. Every time you give, it's an opportunity to affirm once again your thankfulness to God and your trust in God. It's a way, a way to, 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 to force you to release hold of what you think is yours but really isn't. And to be reminded that you are merely a steward. I am merely a steward of whatever it is that God happens to place in my hands. But it's not just our money. We fixate on that. But look, we live in a culture that is so obsessed with productivity and efficiency, where getting things done is the greatest good, where type A-driven personalities are exalted, and rest and Sabbath seem quaint or antiquated or outdated or just impossible. And in such a context, all our time, all of it, is meant to be sacrificed to these gods of productivity. And as a result, giving time to God in prayer or Bible reading or Sabbath rest often seems impossible. But Let me close this little section with a brief story that might help For the first eight years of my working life, I was uh, doing website design and development for biomedical research journals, and it was an incredibly stressful, intense work environment, very high expectations, super tight uh, deadlines, there was this pressure to be online and available all the time, and as a result, my devotional life was getting completely squeezed out of the picture. But what helped me out of that hole was learning to rethink of my devotions as a form of, almost like as a form of tithing my time. Giving away part of my time voluntarily each day to God became a way for me to, in effect, say to God, look, this day belongs to you, Lord, not me. You're the one who brought me to this job. You're the one who provides for me financially through this job, and you're the one who will care for me in the future, whether it's at this job or somewhere else. And as such, I give you this time as a pledge of my faith in your ability to provide. Now, obviously, that's just like a fancy prayer I wrote for this sermon. (laughs) Okay? But. Essentially, that was what was going on in my heart every morning when I had to choose to set aside the email and the crush and the pressure of work to find space to give to God. I mean, how many times have you found yourself thinking, I can't afford to take the time right now But choosing to give the first fruits of my day to God is actually a way of sort of putting a stake in the ground and saying, This day is yours, Lord. It's not mine. And I choose to believe that you, Lord, will help me do whatever it is that you think needs to get done today, not me. And so I want to encourage you to learn to love God, not just with your money. But with your time, with all of your life, freely giving it all to God in worship. Now, my second encouragement today from the text is this to love others generously. Now, that the first 11 verses of our passage are focused vertically on our relationship with God, these next verses are focused horizontally on our relationships with other people. So, in a way, you can think of verses 1 through 11 as love God and verses 12 through 15, love others. So, look with me at the text in verse 12. He says, "When you have finished paying all the tithes of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled" Then you shall say before the Lord your God. Now Moses is a little short on on all the details we might want for these ceremonies. But the general principle seems to reaffirm a process that he already laid down in chapter 14. This idea of of a triennial tithe every three years setting aside a portion of their produce and their grain and their harvest as a special tithe to give to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember, these were the most vulnerable people in their community, those who didn't have land for themselves, those who were most at risk, most in danger of slipping into poverty, those who were largely reliant on the care and the charity and the support of others in the community around them. And here, as Moses wraps up his summary of the law, out of everything else that he could talk about, he chooses to emphasize this particular social obligation instead. And he sets this up as a, as a form of a moral duty, right? That people were to prove their love for God by displaying their love for their neighbor, Look at the text. As they gave this tithe away, they were then to make a solemn declaration to God, saying, Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was mourning or removed any of it while I was unclean or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Now look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the ground that you have given us as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. So this this wasn't meant to be a, a begrudging gift like, like, fine, if you insist on me giving this to them, here you go. On the other hand, it wasn't meant to be a disinterested charity. Like, okay, whatever, I'll write a check. Just This triennial tithe was an opportunity for the people to affirm that they had set this gift apart willingly and completely and fully, sharing the bounty with others was a way to remind the people of their identity as stewards of God's resources. But like everything else, there's a unique little twist to this ceremony, because if you look at the text, their declaration was also a way of affirming the very sacred nature of this gift. Even as it provided very concrete, tangible needs for the care of others, it was also something sacred, Holy, set apart. That's verse 13. They were to make it very clear that the gift was not something that had already been offered to the dead or been made ritually unclean by connection in any way. This was most likely here a reference to Canaanite fertility practices and other idolatrous religious activities of the time. And he's saying, look, you can't double dip on your gifts. using the same food both to appease local gods and also then to care for the poor. Now, several years ago, we were um, on a mission trip to Peru, and at the very end of the trip, we went uh, to visit uh, a ruin. And before entering, the tour guide asked us to leave a little offering. You can't see it very well here, but it's like a little shelf here in the stone before you go inside here. And he asked us to leave an offering. Can you leave an offering here on the stone to Mother Earth or whatever it was? And it was very socially awkward in that moment, but we kind of politely refused and explained, you know, we're Christians. We're not going to do that. So we didn't leave anything. But now imagine if, what if we had done so? Maybe we were like, okay, I don't know. I don't, here's a granola bar and left like a granola bar up on there. Right? And then we come back out, and I don't want this granola bar to go to waste, so like, I take it back. And then later, seeing someone in need on the street, I'm like, well, you know, waste not, want not, and give it to uh, this poor guy on the street. Right? I mean, food is food. What's the big deal? Well, on the one hand, the, the chemical structure of that granola bar doesn't change just because I left it on that rock there. Right? It's still a granola bar. But the food is not the real issue. The people were moving into a dangerously pagan region, and Moses warns them to stay as far away from idolatrous practices as possible. This meant that any food that was offered in a pagan ritual was ritually contaminated. It was uh, not just sinful to do, but it, it had become contaminated in some way with sin. You've heard of re-gifting, right? Like you take an old gift, you don't want it, you give it to somebody else. This was The temptation here was to sort of retithe their gifts, right? After all, it's just going to go to waste. I leave all this stack of grain here, and now I might as well just give it to care for the poor, and I can check off both boxes, keep all of the gods happy. But the people were to cut no spiritual corners at all in making the triennial tithe. While caring for the needy and vulnerable was good and important and necessary, the way in which they did it was of utmost importance to God. He said, that matters to me. And so we see that loving your neighbor is every bit as spiritual as loving God because all of life is sacred And holy, not just the religious stuff that we do in here on a Sunday morning, but all of it, eating, drinking, studying, resting, playing, laughing, crying, building, whatever it is. All of creation is the Lord's. Every part of our lives falls under his control. And everything that we think, we say, we feel, we do is meant to be done for him and as an offering to him. But the bigger point is an affirmation of the heart intention to willingly, generously, and openly care for others in the community. And so I'm, I'm challenged in reading this this morning to think, who are the sojourners, the fatherless, and the widows in, in my community? Whether that's here at GFC or, or, or in my neighborhood or in my school or in my family or extended family, And what's my heart attitude towards caring for them? Something that I do with the leftovers? Something that I do sort of re-gifting? Or something that I'm doing freely and generously with a desire to help and to bless and to show them the love of God that he has shown to me? My third encouragement to you today is this, is simply to live your life consistently. You know, we're in the middle of a uh, graduation season right now, right? And it's an exciting time of transition and, and change. All these young women and men are turning over a new page in their lives, preparing to launch out into something new. And in some small way, these ceremonies are not dissimilar from what Moses uh, repeats here in the last section of chapter 26. He affirms all the the privileges and the, the responsibilities conferred by God on the people, and at the same time, reminds them of their duties and their commitments to God as they sort of graduate from a life of being wandering nomads to being permanent residents. And so as we see here in the text, starting in verse 16, Moses says, This day the Lord your God commands you to do all these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God, as he has promised. I think the point Moses is trying to make is that having heard the law, having affirmed the law, they now have to actually do the law. Right? He's pushing for the people to be consistent in both how they speak and how they act. To push back against the temptation to hypocrisy and to live out their faith with their actions this week, uh, I was driving and I pulled up behind a pulled up behind a pickup truck, and I was like, Oh, this is really cool it 's got a sticker on the back, and it says, Jesus for life, and it 's got a cross right in the middle' And then down on the bumper, he's got another one, and it's a a cross, and there's like a cowboy and a horse, and they're both bowing reverently. Have you seen those stickers, like cowboy church sticker? The horse, even the horse is worshiping Jesus. It's amazing. And then uh, I'm like, wow, this is awesome, right? And then there was a third sticker on the car, and I cannot show you a photo of it because it was actually pretty offensive. It was one of those Calvin and Hobbes, Bumper stickers, and maybe you've seen those. Uh, And the cartoon Calvin is standing next to the words, ex-wife. And he's demonstrating uh, visually with his actions exactly what he thinks of his ex-wife. And it was basically the equivalent of saying, I want the whole world to know exactly how much I hate my ex-wife. And I was like, uh, I think we got a problem here. (laughs) Like, clearly there is a massive disconnect in this man's life between his profession of Jesus as Lord on one side of the car and this bitter, angry, hate-filled feelings towards his ex-wife on the other. It's hard for me to see how this person could honestly claim, in any way, to be sort of whole, a person holy to the Lord, as Moses calls his people to be here in verse 19. Now that's an extreme example; it's shocking to see it. But this kind of thing happens in dozens. Of smaller and subtler ways all the time because it's so incredibly easy for us to affirm and declare the right things with our mouths, but then do something completely different when we're outside of this sort of social accountability, Christian accountability settings. To declare the Lord is God, that's verse 17 but then fail to do the commands and statutes he requires. That's verse 16. None of us are perfect. I get that, right? But I want to stress what Moses does here, that our actions matter just as much as our beliefs. The fruit of the tree indicates the relative health of the root of the tree, Right? Or Jesus would later say, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We're going to talk more about the blessings and the curses associated with their obedience to the law in the next few weeks. But there's something else here I want you to see. Look at verse 18 again. Moses says, And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession. Treasured. Possession. That phrase carries so much meaning with it. Right? First, if you're like me, it's, it's so encouraging to hear God speak of me as his treasured possession, special, called, set apart, chosen. God's love is not just generic. Right. It's applied to me specifically. I have value in God's eyes. But while that's true, the second level of meaning is perhaps even more significant because you are also God's possession. In other words, you belong to him now. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. right? You're his, and, and that means that you owe him your life, like, like all of it. You're called to reflect his character and his purposes to the world. And so in the New Testament, Peter talks about, uses the same language to insist that as God's possession, we are now meant to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In other words, all our work for God is meant to reflect God's glory to the world around us. Whatever we do, in our work, in our play, even in our rest, doing it in a manner that announces to the world around us, I belong to God. I owe everything to God. I live in this unique and particular way because of God's claim on my life. Now, in some ways, it's easy to look different, right? You can slap a bumper sticker on a car. You can throw a hashtag on your posts. But are all your actions consistent, truly consistent with those proclamations? And what kind of follow-through is there in your life? In overall terms, right? Not 100%, but overall, generally speaking, are you walking more and more closely with Jesus or not? And who is helping you stay on that path? Or who are the people that you can help stay on that path? We've said this dozens of times before, but isolating yourself from Christian community is a very dangerous place to be. Satan consistently is picking off the stragglers, right the ones who stray too far away from the pack, the ones who are convinced they can go it alone, the ones who have been drifting for years and never done anything to get the car back in gear. Don't be that person. Instead, fight to have your fruit reflect the true root of Christ-saving, powerful work in your lives. As we finish all this up, I want to direct your attention back to verse 11, real quick. Moses says, And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. Tithing was never meant to be uh, something that gives you a sense of loss, like, oh man, I've lost something, I'm down now but rather meant to be a reminder of the great gain that we have in Christ. Whether it was the triennial tithe given to the needy or the first fruits offered at the temple, all this giving was meant to lead the people into worship and praise, meant to be a time of celebration and rejoicing. Of course, the reality is we don't always feel like celebrating or rejoicing. Right? Sin is so warped, us and the world around us, that it can sometimes be hard to see God's hand in anything. And yet Paul, writing to the Philippians from prison, could nevertheless command his readers to rejoice in everything. He's so adamant, he he says it again, rejoice. A command that traces its roots all the way back here to chapter 26. But how could Paul say that? I mean, he's in prison. Right? How could he say that knowing all the heartache and suffering and trials that believers would face as they live for Christ? Because the grounds for our rejoicing is not in the relative ease of our circumstances, but in Jesus and the work that he has done for us on the cross. And so I say to you here in closing, Rejoice in the God who blazes the trail before you. Rejoice in the God who forgives the sin you leave behind you. Rejoice in the God who wades through deep waters and walks through fiery trials with you. Rejoice in the God who reigns above you. Rejoice in the God who places your feet on firm ground beneath you. And rejoice in the God who patiently and graciously and consistently works within you, forming and shaping you until one day you will celebrate all his mighty works, together with all the saints, gathered together from all of time in the awe-inspiring presence of the Lord himself. What a day of celebration that will be. And until that day, may we all be people who live for God with all of our hearts for all of life. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are, we just come to you this morning overwhelmed at your good gifts to us. Lord, your constant presence with us, your endless, bountiful, generous provision, Lord, the ways in which you lead us and care for us and provide for us. And we pray that you would help us to remember that, to rejoice in that, to celebrate in that, and to give you worship in all of it. In Jesus' name, amen.